Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. When unprecedented flooding roars through a national park, shredding major roads at Access Ad Park, it rightfully could be pointed to as the top story in the national park system. And while Yellowstone National Park was that park, not only the flooding, but the lack of any human casualties and the relatively rapid recovery ranked that story as arguably the top one in the national park system in 2022. But that wasn't the only major story that came out of the parks this year. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Today, we're looking back at some of the top stories across the national park system in 2022. To help me identify them, I've asked Kristen Brengel, the National Parks Conservation Association's Senior Vice President for Government Affairs, and Mike Murray, Chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, to join me. I'll be back in a minute with Kristen and Mike. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. An attitude of gratitude can improve the way you manage your money. Enroll in Credit Score for free with Interior Federal Credit Union's digital banking and get started. Staying on top of your credit has never been easier. Join today to experience the benefits for yourself. Membership is required. Interior Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, Mike and Kristen. For having us. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. It's it's great to connect after uh, it's been about six weeks or so since we last talked, and we agreed that it'd be um, a good move to come back at the end of the year and kind of look back across um, 2022 and, and how how the National Park System and the National Park Service have fared over the past 12 months. And, you know, my, my pick for the top story of the year, obviously, um, was Yellowstone National Park and the historic flooding that roared through there in June. Um, just mind-boggling to look at the damage to the, the North Entrance Road and the Northeast Entrance Road and to appreciate that there were no fatalities um, associated with that event. I mean, June in Yellowstone National Park, you've got tens of thousands of visitors there, maybe hundreds of thousands, and it was just amazing. Um what do you guys think? I mean, what was the biggest story of the year in the national park system? Mike? You know, um, Yellowstone flooding is on my list. I was going to broaden the category to extreme events, probably exacerbated by climate change. So uh, in addition to the Yellowstone flooding, and some of these are at parks I worked at. I worked at Yellowstone uh, houses routinely, Washington to the surf, Cape Hatteras National Seashore sea level rise, shoreline erosion from big storms, contributing to that. I spent nine years in the Sierra Nevada, five in Yosemite, four in Sequoia Kings Canyon, out of controlled wildfires, extended drought, uh, giant sequoias dying in unprecedented numbers, at least in terms of his history, you know, human knowledge, sequoias. Uh, Giant sequoia trees are adapted to live in a narrow elevation range on the west slope of the Sierra Nevada. There's enough snowfall and snowpack to provide the moisture they need. And they're extremely well adapted to wildfire. They have this really, really thick bark at the base. It's often a foot thick and it doesn't burn normally. But these super hot fires in drought conditions is impacting the survival of the species. I forget what the number is, but it was something like uh, up to 20% of the sequoias were killed or damaged beyond recovery in the summer's fires. And then I'll throw one more or a couple more in there. The receding reservoirs at Glen Canyon 
in Lake Mead, there's no obvious solution to that. And then the last I'll throw in just to have some geographic mix is Denali Road. Melting permafrost is exacerbating landslides, you know, warmer temperature triggered landslides of the primary road in and out of the park. And I forget the projection, but it's another year and a half or so before they think they can reopen it. So all these things are expensive to fix. They're unplanned events. They impact visitor access. And to me, the big story is impacts of climate change. And yet that seems to escape kind of being top of the mind among park advocates and the public in general as probably the biggest threat to our national park resources and values since 1872. So that for me is the biggest story. I don't know how to wrap it up in a nice, neat little package, but be curious what uh, Kristen has to say. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna unwrap that big package into tiny little packages as we go on. But yeah, Kristen, I'm interested from your perspective. I, I completely agree with Mike. That is part of the list, right? And and there are more tragic circumstances, the hurricanes uh in the Gulf. There there are so many parks that you can add to the list of natural disasters, extreme weather that occurred this year in a pretty dramatic way. You know, how much water can the Everglades absorb till it's completely flooded? Um, those types of issues as well to put on top of what Mike said. So I think that is the, the 2022 park story and everyone should be watching this closely and not being so dismissive of the fact that this is what climate change does uh, to our ecosystems. This is what climate change does to wildlife movement. Are we going to have cultural resources the way that we expect them to be uh, going into the future? And if we know that these changes are just going to continue, like you were pointing out, Mike, uh, Glen Canyon and Lake Mead, what are we going to do to reshape visitation and resource protection in order to kind of get, adapt and get used to climate change? Um, and one of the things that I've hi highlighted for the Park Service and we have an active lawsuit on is Glen Canyon. If we continue to allow off-road vehicle use as the recreational alternative instead of boat use at Glen Canyon, that is not good for the Park Service. That is not good for the parks of Utah. There have to be places in Utah where you can't take a screaming off-road vehicle. And making Glen Canyon another home base for that activity because climate change is changing the reservoir and making places more accessible. Can we think of other ways to bring people in the park to appreciate the cultural resource or the, or the natural resources? And so I think what one of my fears is it's the convergence, right, of, of resource protection, climate change, and visitor use. And this is going to be a very pivotal time for the Park Service to think very deeply about how those things are connected to each other and to not make decisions that are going to make the climate situation worse by, like I'm saying at Glen Canyon, adding off-road vehicles into the mix in a bigger way and damaging the resources. And so I think there's so much to, to consider as we see the climate changing and it's it's got to be we, we need more planners at the Park Service to really help us think this through. You know, you both raised some very interesting um, stories that flooded over the, the national park system this year, not to use a pun, but um, certainly they are everywhere. And one thing that really exacerbates all this is staffing at the National Park Service. I mean, we had a, a story a, a couple of weeks ago about Mount Rainier, and they're going to you can't visit Paradise, a very popular area at the mountain there uh, during the middle of the week because they don't have staff to provide the law enforcement, to provide interpretive tours, to provide snowplow operators. Um, and so they've had to, uh, for the time being at least, and, and until um, staffing shows up, they, they've cut off uh, access to Paradise in winter except for on weekends. Um, 
There's another park, uh, Fort Stanwyck National Monument in upstate New York. They're closed for the winter. I mean, the monument is open, but the visitor center is closed, and the, the fort itself is closed to the public. Um, I'm trying to find out um, what, what why that is. Is it due to a lack of visitation, or is it due to a lack of um, staffing? But uh, across the national park system, there is this problem with not being able to retain staff because they can't be paid enough or there's no housing for them. That's got to be an incredible problem. I mean, because of all these other issues that you two have addressed require staff. I've noticed on um, social media channels how much not just the Park Service, but Forest Service and other agencies are advertising jobs right now. It seems like there's a, a real backlog in many of the public land agencies in terms of getting positions filled. I know from talking to the Bureau of Land Management that they have an, an incredible amount of unfilled positions right now. We have to think about our federal employees and taking care of them and what it's going to take to provide them uh, an affordable salary and then also make sure they can actually afford to live in places. And I think as a country, we actually have to rethink that in a lot of places because some places, including in Utah, where you are, Kurt, are just, they're pricing people out completely of housing. So how are you going to have people working in restaurants and all sorts of locations in addition to the park service staff and, and everything like that when you know, as I think Denny Galvin on our board said, you know, if, if your rent is 40% of your salary, it just creates a very difficult position for you and your family. I agree. This is a key challenge. I think it's also complicated by record visitation, at least during peak season at a number of parks. So it seems like people are referring to that as overcrowding you know, a handful of parks are working on visitor use management plans right now to try to better deal with overcrowding. But from what I've seen, my experience has been whenever you implement a measure to deal with overcrowding, whether it's a shuttle system, timed entry reservation, you name it, it usually takes more staffing. And that's compounds the staffing problem. So Mount Rainier not being able to keep Paradise open on weekdays in the winter, not related to overcrowding, but it, I think it's a strong reflection of the fundamental challenge of it boils down to budget for operations. I'm saying this from memory, so I hope I get this accurately. A few years ago, I know in some of our advocacy information, we had identified that between fiscal year 2009 and 2019, the Park Service in the green book, so you know, based on the total full-time equivalents, FTEs, which translates into staff, uh, had lost 3,500 full-time equivalents. Or it's not exactly a position. So a four-month seasonal, it would take three of those to equal 12 months, which equals one full-time equivalent or you know year-round employee. So that's significant, 3,500 positions that could be, you know, double that in terms of seasonals. And that's a shortfall that occurred over a decade, but now it's exacerbated by overcrowding, record visitation. Again, it's typically in peak season months, but not always. Sometimes it's the shoulder seasons. And I can tell you operationally, when you don't have enough money to hire the staff, you start to cut back on seasonals. You start to shorten their season. It's one of the few very <laughs> bad flexibilities that you have budget-wise because it would be an adverse action to take a permanent full-time employee and cut their time back. You know, you have to go through much more complicated personnel procedures to do that versus, you know, reducing the length of season for all your seasonals in order to save enough money to pay for them to be there during the key peak season months. So, so Kristen, I'm wondering, um, you know, we saw this huge lobbying effort in recent years to get the Great American Outdoors Act funded with a large portion of that going to deferred maintenance, maintenance backlog across the park system. Do we need something similar for park service staff to be able to hire more staff and to pay them 
uh, a livable wage? A livable wage issue is something that we need to work on with the federal government and the Office of Management and Budget. Um, it's an issue with so many places and it needs to be figured out on, on the federal level. In terms of the staffing issue, we've made progress over the years with incremental increases. They haven't been big enough to make up for the staff that Mike talked about. But for instance, this year, the House and Senate in their appropriations bills each had about a 10% increase for the operational side of the National Park Service, which would result in, I think we calculated about 1,500 more staff, if I'm, if I'm correct. Unfortunately, Congress right now, as we're, or I shouldn't say that, but Congress is debating these bills and figuring out how much is going to go towards the Park Service. And so the result will likely be a smaller amount of money for the Park Service in this bill. And so the problem is we and PCA and, and, and the retirees, we work very hard to try to get the appropriators help to fund the park service better and to staff the park service better. They get it, we can see it in their bills, but what ends up happening is when the bills start to get negotiated by leadership, they chop the numbers down and we never get that 10% increase that the appropriators fought for during the process. And so it does beg the question, Kurt, do we need to work on these bills that are outside of the appropriations process to get big boosts? And we did get that with the Inflation Reduction Act this year. Um, Senator Manchin fought to keep $500 million in that bill for park personnel. And Park Service was so it was such an unexpected gift to the Park Service this year that they weren't prepared for um, that money. So they're working on a policy right now on how to spend that money over the next 10 years. But that might be the wave of the future that for how we lobby on this is to try to insert park personnel money in these big bills that are, you know, have billions of dollars in them and try to do a carve out for the Park Service. But we were happy to get the 500 million in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act this year and, um, and really uh, thank Senator Manchin for keeping the faith and making sure it stayed in there in the final negotiations. But we talk about it often at NPCA. What do we need, how, how do we need to rearrange how we're lobbying on Capitol Hill to maximize these funding sources for the Park Service? Yeah, it's a never-ending problem. We're talking today with uh, Mike Murray, the chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Kristen Brengel, senior vice president for government affairs at National Parks Conservation Associations, about the top stories in the national park system this past year. We'll be right back after a short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. We're back now with uh, Kristen from NPCA and Mike from the Coalition to Protect America's National Park. Mike, you wanted to add something to what Kristen was just talking about with uh, personnel funding? Uh, right. I, I think she made an interesting point. I kind of agree with her that rather than being able to directly get significant increases in appropriations, annual budget for operations, it seems like uh, money in you know, a separate avenue of a bill such as the Inflation Reduction Act may be a more effective way to go. 
Um, I worked for the Park Service from 1978 to 2012. And I've been trying to remember, when was the last time that the Park Service had a budget as of October 1st? And um, I did some research, um, and I'm not quite sure about the Park Service, but the last time that Congress passed all the budget bills by October 1st was fiscal year 1997. And then it was the fourth time in the previous 20 years that it had been done. So continuing resolutions are the norm every year. I know I fool myself into thinking it's going to happen this year. They're just going to pass the budget, but that's not how it works anymore. And so what are the impacts of continuing resolutions? I know from an operations level, you have to drop what you're doing and spend time preparing for a shutdown whether it occurs or not. Uh, there's delays in purchasing supplies, equipment. Uh, there's delayed contracts and grants. There's delayed hiring, et cetera. In fact, uh, in 2018, the Government Accountability Office did a study of the impacts of continuing resolutions, and they documented a number of these. I just find that interesting. An organization like NPCA or the coalition or National Parks Traveler, or any major industry could not survive if they operated like this, entering your new operating year or fiscal year, however you want to word it, without knowing what your budget is. And yet that's routinely done for the government. I don't know the solution, but I think that's another compounding effect to all these other things we've already talked about. But they all end up affecting employee morale. There's less security. There's fewer seasonal or permanent hires. You know, the goal for most seasonal employees is to become permanent. And so there's more uncertainty about that. And, uh, you know, we know that the Park Service has been mired in the lower 10% of the best places to work in the federal government. In other words, they're in the worst end of the stick there. So. It's a complicated issue. I don't know the easy solution. You know, Mike, you mentioned you mentioned that uh, the best places to work in federal government study and traveler reports on that every year when it comes out. And the most recent study, the bulk of the Park Service staff does not believe the National Park Service is meeting its mission. And I'm just curious, um, you know, Director Sams came on board saying that his number one priority was to improve staff morale. Are you guys hearing anything? I mean, we've tried to reach out and get a, a conversation going with the director, but so far they've refused to do that. I'm just wondering what you're hearing in terms of, is he having any success in bolstering employee morale? Well, I think you even have to go back a little bit farther to the 2018 Voices Report, I think it was called, Yeah, where staff, women, LGBTQ+, plus, BIPOC, so many folks feeling like the culture continues to be, you know, dominated, a dominant male, white male, predominantly culture, militaristic still, um, and don't really see how they fit into the picture and feel like they have to act differently when they come to work and can't be themselves. And, you know, when you read these reports, they're heartbreaking that, you know, here we are you know, trying to diversify the park system and update interpretation and tell the stories better. Yet the parks of the staff feel defeated in many places. They feel like those are the very stories, their own lives. They can't represent who they are when they show up to work. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so hard to hear that, but let's not try to quiet those voices and let's lift them up and address some of these issues. What we've seen in terms of the hiring of even uh, certain staff people within the Park Service, things aren't really changing at a rapid enough pace when we're talking here. And we're still seeing it's the same system that we've seen for decades. And we, we need to sort of, some, there's got to be a break somewhere um, when someone has to come in and really take this on as a huge issue. And from what I gather at the assistant secretary's level, you know, I know that Shannon Estenos has been working on improving the HR 
system at the Park Service. I know she really wanted to take that on. I don't know where the progress is on that right now, but this has to be someone's full-time job to really take this on and be collateral to whatever their other duties are. And so it has to change. We, you know, we have to make sure the Park Service looks like the rest of America and that people feel like they can break into management positions and and higher level positions within the agency. But visibly, as I travel through parks, as I meet with people in Washington, D.C., you don't see a lot of change. Mike, um, what's, what's your perspective on that? I completely agree with uh, what Kristen has said. Uh, I'd like to point out a couple things. One, there's a different rating system of I don't know the exact title, but it's the most respected federal agencies, so the public's perception. And it's not broken down by individual agencies. So for the Department of Interior is consistently rated one of the most respected federal agencies. And you know, with my background, I tend to want to give credit, at least some of the credit for that to the Park Service. So my perspective is Park Service has among the most dedicated employees, and yet um, they also feel like they aren't well supported by their agency. Um, something that hasn't gotten much attention, but there is a special COVID hiring authority. So a number of people are hired for longer term jobs without any benefits and no hope of converting to a permanent position. And I've heard mixed reviews. It was a good thing because it enabled some quick hiring, but it was almost like those employees were disposable too. They could be let go at any time and uh, they had no benefits uh, that you'd normally have as a, a longer term or permanent employee. I think there's, I, I've spent the last few months talking to a number of current employees. Uh, most are in the, like the first 10 years of their career. One individual is an upper management position who came in from the outer, you know, outside uh, the agency and asked them about the morale issue. And I think they all realize it's complicated. It's, you can't just snap your fingers and get more staffing and more budget, more housing and all the things that kind of the structural things that uh, impact morale. But there's also a cultural problem. It's hard to put a finger on, but you know, a handful of the younger employees said, you know, they occasionally hear lip service from upper management of, you know, we're going to address the morale issue, but they feel like they never see any results. And these individuals that I talk to are very realistic. They don't expect it to change overnight. They just want to see a little bit of steady progress and follow through. So they don't even have confidence that senior leadership is willing to you know, to put their words into action. Spoke to a higher level person who came in from um, the outside. And he, this individual's based in the, you know, headquarters office in Washington. And his experience was, there's just poor communication from upper management to the field. And this is a broad brush, one person's perspective, and I'm reporting it secondhand. But he felt, and he was at a high level, that employees don't feel like they're being heard. He said from the upper management point of view, he thinks that they think they understand the problem and you know, are overwhelmed with work and politics and all that stuff and trying to deal with it, but they aren't communicating so that lower level employees, the ones who do most of the public contact work for the park service, so that they feel like they're being heard. So it's not an easy thing to fix. I would say I have a little bit of reason for hope. Uh, I went to the Ranger Rendezvous back in October and a fairly new, uh, the Associate Director for Workforce Diversity and Inclusion, uh, a woman named Rita Moss was there. She's coming over from Department of Homeland Security, I believe. And I don't know what parallels in hiring and personnel and diversity, et cetera, that they may have with the Park Service. But she shared her proposed work plan. And so she's aware of all these issues and concerns from it takes a long time to hire somebody, even if you have the money, to there's housing problems, uh, diversity and inclusion problems. 
So she has what strikes me as a work plan that sounds good. You know, the question that comes up is, can she get it done? Well, man upper management, you know, director's office, et cetera, support the effort it takes to get it done. The last thing I'll say is recently read a case study that NASA and the government accountability office of all places have the two best diversity inclusion programs in federal government. And so in reading the article, trying to figure out what system do they have? What traits do they have? How do they do that? They make it a priority. That sounds kind of obvious, but the park service a lot of times will say, yeah, we're gonna do this. They've incorporated it into their mission. You know, maybe not their legislatively declared mission, but they treat it as a mission objective to improve diversity and inclusion in their agency. And they're doing it. And their employees believe it's important to management because management says it's important and then they do something about it. So, you know, that's a lot of stuff, but I think there's reason for hope um, that there's a good plan, I think, to address at the organizational level some of these things, but there needs to be a higher priority from upper management to support it and make it part of their mission. Interesting. We're talking today with Mike Murray, the chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Christian Brengel, senior VP for the National Parks Conservation Association uh, in the government affairs realm. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, or development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Okay, we're back with Mike and Christian. You know, um, one of the things that uh, you both mentioned early on was climate change and its impacts on the national park system. And it's pretty close to 100% of the park system is impacted in some way by climate change, whether it's sea level rise or wildfires or drought or invasive species that uh, climate has made more suitable for um, places where they previously weren't suitable. I've heard that... um, there is work inside the Park Service to kind of develop strategies. And I believe the first one they're working on um, revolves around uh, coastal parks. And um, I'm, I'm trying to get more information on that, but I haven't yet. Have you guys heard anything about that, about uh, you know the Park Service trying to be more proactive and, and come up with strategies, whether it's sea level rise or whether it's wildfires? Yes, there's definitely a, an effort to conduct more research and then do more planning on climate change. The coastal uh, issue came up, and you'll remember, Kurt, there was a report, I think even it came out during the Trump administration, on storm surges and where they the parks that would be the most susceptible to storm surges. And I actually expected the Outer Banks to be um, very, very, you know, the top of the list, but it was actually the tidal basin in Washington, D.C. And There are so many different factors that go into how to determine storm surges, sea level rise, all of these things. But, um, you know, with 88 national park uh, system units that are considered coastal, I think that also includes some of the seashores and the Great Lakes. This is a problem that is 
presenting itself very clearly uh, to all of us as we see hurricane season is a problem every year. It's it's not just uh, occasionally. We're, we're constantly seeing problems because of um, different seasonal behavior, weather behavior. So um, it doesn't surprise me that the Park Service is looking at the coastal areas first, but we all know the Colorado River is in such bad condition right now. And there's so much talk back in he- back here in DC about the drought and how are we going to get out in front of it. And what makes me sad is that they keep building the piers at Glen Canyon and Lake Mead further out so that yeah, the boat ramps, uh, the boat ramps so that folks can access the water. But I mean, that just seems like a futile effort after a while. Um, and just sinking money into a lost cause. And so we have to start sorting through what this means. And um, I think another publication did a story about the Colorado River and really talked about from the Rocky Mountains down to Grand Canyon, some of the effects of the drought conditions and and how they're going to affect the different national parks. And, And so, you know, this is, this is a problem for so many beloved places and um, we know the Park Service is trying to wrap its head around it. We know other federal agencies are trying to wrap their heads around some of these problems. But um, I'm worried a little bit, Kurt, that especially you mentioned invasives, these are going to kill off so many species you know, so quickly that we're just not getting out in front of it. And certainly Congress isn't funding invasives very well. Um, so some of these problems are really not being addressed very well at all through the budgets of the park service and the other agencies. And so something dramatic has to happen. And what we're hoping to do is uh, now that the park service has some money to do restoration and resilience work, we were able to get about another $500 million for the park service and BLM for that climate work on the ground, that's not a lot of money. We know that from the Great Outdoors Bill, that 500 million isn't gonna go very far. But I think what we need to demonstrate is make sure the Park Service uses it in some places and on different climate-related issues, and then really talk up these programs and uh, these projects so that Congress sees that they have to continue to put money in them. But when you think about the amount of money that we've lobbied, Kurt, whether it's great outdoors money, climate money, disaster money, infrastructure money, and you look at how much we've been able to get outside of the Park Service budget, it's almost equal to the same amount as the entire Park Service budget. And so clearly the Park Service budget is not where it needs to be to address all these existential and other crises that they're having. And so it's just sad at this point that we're we're not able to um, really address the climate issue in particular in a really aggressive way with the Park Service. We're going to be able to potentially do it in some places, but not not everywhere. And I think circling back around to your coastal comment, you got to start somewhere. Well, you know, Mike, your last um, posting with the Park Service was at Cape Hatteras. Sea level rise, more potent storms. I mean, is, is Cape Hatteras going to exist in 20 to 30 years? And before you answer that question, you can kind of tie it into to what the Park Service is doing at, at Glen Canyon and Lake Mead and continually expanding the boat ramps. I mean, how much money do you throw away by doing that? And at Cape Hatteras, you know, is the Park Service going to turn to, to beach nourishment to try and, you know, prevent the uh, inevitable? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in the Outer Banks, at least in the Dare County sites, everything but Ocracook Island at Cape Hatteras. Uh, Dare County has a funding mechanism for beach nourishment. And so for a number of years now, including when I was still there, they are able to fund regular beach nourishment. And once you become dependent on beach nourishment in an area that's got a very active (laughs) surf erosion problem, it's perpetual, it's forever. It costs tens of millions every time you do it, but they have a fund source. And it basically, they take part of the lodging tax. So they, or they stay in a motel or rent a cottage, there's a tax. And a portion of that, they call the sand tax. And that 
is like the local portion and the state has a matching fund to ensure beach nourishment forever. Now, is that a good thing? Um, it's complicated. Uh, sea turtles don't like to nest in recently nourished beaches. It doesn't have the same kind of grain of sand and same uh, density, you know, compaction as a normal beach. Um, as we're seeing on Hatteras Island, as the beach erodes more, it's interesting that the, the park boundary on the islands, Hatteras Island, Ocracoke, is generally the mean high water mark. So as the shoreline erodes, the park boundary, which used to be the beach, you know, up to the dune line, the way, you know, way a visitor would see it, but now it's gone into the village. And so that, that complicates things politically. Some people with great foresight decided to move Cape Hatteras Light in 1999. And when I was there, we moved a couple more historic structures. I think, you know, one of the most practical strategies in dealing with sea level rise in low elevation coastal areas is retreat. But when the shoreline erodes into one of the seven villages on Hatteras, they have nowhere to retreat to. So anyway, it's just gonna be ex an expensive game and depends on frequency and intensity of big storms. S sometimes a big storm may cut a hole in the island or wipe out a good part of a village. And other times beach nourishment, which takes a couple of years to plan and then you know another full year to implement. Beach nourishment may keep the beaches there long enough that you know, it's decades or somebody's you know, length of a lifetime before, you know, something major, major happens. It's hard to predict. I, I do want to say that the Park Service for a number of years has had a very effective technical staff in what's called the Climate Response Program Office. Uh, they were kind of constrained considerably under the previous administration. So funding for research was reduced. There were allegations of censorship of terminology used in reports. So anthropomorphic climate change, climate change caused by burning of fossil fuels, you know, attributable to man, were, were not allowed. And so we've done some inquiry through some of our connections. And it sounds like the climate response program is trying to get back up and running to where they were, you know, five years ago, six years ago. So they need funding because they coordinate a lot of the research. And there's places I'd never even think of that are more at risk to climate change than anywhere in the continental US, American Samoa, Guam, their park units there that the islands are all may disappear <laughs> at some point. So they prioritize the research. There's quite a bit of coastal park research, but Climate impacts are everywhere. Sierra Nevada, Northern Rockies, Colorado River Basin, Alaska. I just talked to a colleague who lives in Anchorage last night, and they're winding up the wettest year in recorded history. And it's not so much a lot of snow. They've gotten a lot of snow. They're getting a foot right now, I guess. But they get so much rain, and it's the whole issue of warmer air can hold more moisture. So that's what it boils down to. And I lived in the Florida Keys, so I know about <laughs> warm air and moisture. Yeah, you know, before we we wrap this up, and and um, there have been some some positive stories across the park system this past year. Um, you know, the Traveler did a oh almost a year long project on invasive species across the park system, and there are some successes. I mean, down at Everglades National Park uh, with the the Melaleuca. Um, um, they're they're removing a lot of that, and um, Brazilian pepper. They're they're having success there. They're trying to keep an eye on tegus, um, uh, invasive lizard um, that come up from South America. I'm not haven't gotten an update yet on on the progress there. Um, just uh, towards the end of this year, um, Interior was able to um, appropriate 14 million dollars um, to Hawaii, and uh, that money will be used to help. Uh, protect the uh, the endemic forest birds um, up in Haleakala National Park, as well as some other places on the island of Maui, um, by by combating the mosquitoes there. And they're going to try and uh, infect, I guess, uh, or insert male 
mosquitoes with a, a certain uh, bacteria that uh, when they breed with the female mosquito, uh, the female will continue to lay eggs, but they won't hatch. And so those mosquitoes carry avian malaria that um, is fatal to the endemic uh, honeycreeper species in the park there. And if that's successful, um, they're going to um, take that program over to um, the Big Island and um, try and protect the birds there as well. Talking about the Big Island, Mauna Loa erupted for the first time in 40 years. And um, fortunately, because it's a shield volcano, it doesn't erupt uh, with nasty um, lahars coming down and wiping out communities or, or tossing boulders five miles or whatnot. And uh, where it is inside the National Park, it's been um, more of a uh, incredible earth science um, not experiment, but, um, you know, for, for geologists and volcanologists to watch. And, and certainly it's been a, a big um, attraction to visitors. And uh, I know um, my, my son and his wife recently moved to Hawaii and, and they've kind of enjoyed watching the glow from the Hilo side of the park. So it's not a, a bad story. It's, it's a, an interesting story. Um, there must be some other good stories across the national parks. Um, and, and it stick out in your mind, Kristen? Yeah, I think something that we're really proud of is to see the uh, restart of the grizzly bear reintroduction at North Cascades. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, but um, it's wonderful to be back in the business of thinking about ecosystem-wide issues and how you can do predator introduction and and really sort of think through some of the challenges like bison and Yellowstone and really talk about connectivity, talk about how do we ensure that some of these creatures can uh, continue to thrive, whether it's in the lower 48 or some of the other states. It's, it, these stories are fabulous in terms of the Park Service really thinking through these ecosystem-related issues, invasives, reintroductions. And I think there were some really nice recovery stories as well that came out this year. And so it's it's good to feel like we're making progress. It's good to work with an administration that's putting uh, scientists on the ground to work on these issues and to care about the results. Um, I've been happy to see some policies come out of the other land management agencies on wildlife connectivity. And I think there's just a real opportunity here with this administration with the influx of money from the various bills that have passed from infrastructure to um, the Inflation Reduction Act. These policies can be put to work right now. And the ideas that some Park Service staff have had about a species protection um, and um, whether it's getting rid of invasive species or um, just thinking through some of these ecosystem level issues, it it's good to see more focus on this. And I think it's a great story for this year. And when you couple it with seeing more Great American Outdoors Act projects uh, coming to fruition and shovels in the ground on those, it's nice to finally see again, some really proactive resource protection along with some really proactive um, visitor experience improvements. And this is what we needed for the park service right now. and as people were spilling into parks over the COVID time period, I think really teaching everyone that resource protection and visitor experience, you know, we need to make sure these are happening simultaneously so that everyone can have the best possible experience in our parks. And so I think we're making progress, Kurt. I really do. I, I think there are a lot of positive, um, programs in place. Part of me thinks science is critical to figuring out how to respond to climate change and loss of species, diversity, loss of habitat, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, science can't fix everything, but it is a key to addressing these concerns. Uh, for me personally, uh, and this is not a new thing that happened this year, but it's like the culmination of nearly 25, 30 years is just sort of the status of wolf reintroduction at Yellowstone. Um, I worked at the park when wolves were reintroduced. 
And they have a number of packs. They've ranged outside the park, parks surrounded by three states. So it's possible. And, and to me, it just it gives hope that uh, through diligence, good science, and a key element of what happened at Yellowstone is public education. So the public understands and supports what's being done are keys to success. And that's possible, you know, whether it's protecting endangered species from ex exotic species or whatever the project may be. And to add a layer to that, um, I was just trying to look up at, at the circuit. We've been working on longleaf pine restoration and I wanted to see if I could find the number. And um, we have worked with the park service to plant 200,000 longleaf pine in the last decade continuing to see these kinds of programs and have longevity. It's just amazing and wonderful and will restore habitat. And so, you know, continuing to see the support for, for these types of uh, efforts is hopefully will continue to be part of the future of the park service. You know, and I think uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't point to the the many units in the national park system that are not called Yellowstone or Grand Canyon or Yosemite and the dedicated staff at those places and the, the unique stories that they all have to tell. I mean, I, I got out to quite a few national parks this year, not as many as you, Kristen, probably not as many as Mike either, but, you know, going to the Fort Larnids and the Tallgrass Prairies and Bandoliers and the Valles Caldera, they all have such wonderful stories and, and beautiful landscapes and um, great staff to, to interpret these places. And, and certainly I would, uh, I would uh, point to those places as positive stories for, for 2022. Yeah. I, I try to bring my kids to Fort McHenry as much as possible because we, we don't live very far from it. And I brought my nephew for the first time out there over Thanksgiving and, even he, he's from, um, he lived in Colorado and is now in Ohio. And, you know, just to think that you're in Baltimore and you're in this beautifully um, protected and preserved fort and his jaw just dropped and the staff are so dedicated and these places are very well preserved. And you see it as they talk to you about the Star Spangled Banner and they talk about the War of 1812 and it's done very enthusiastically. I've I've been to Fort McHenry so many times and the tour is never, uh, it's, it's always awesome. It's, it, it never disappoints. And so big shout out to all the park service staff who just come to work every day. So dedicated and provide every kid an awesome experience when they get there. And, um, and my kids feel like they're starting to memorize the story of Fort McHenry. So they try to tell it back to the park service staff. So Kudos to them for um, just doing a phenomenal job. But agree, Kurt, that uh, we need to make sure that we're sending some love to the, the smaller parks and their staff that do an amazing job. Um, I totally agree. I have to admit, I'm a huge fan of the national park system, which you know may figure. But um, pre-COVID, I made a couple of uh, cross-country trips out west to do a volunteer stint at Yellowstone at the Museum of the National Park Ranger. So two summers, four or five years ago, drove cross country. I made a point of getting off the highway and visiting every smaller net unit of the national park system I could visit. And every one of them was fascinating. The staff, the interpreters were incredible. And it just, it made me appreciate even more how rich the diversity is within the national park system, you know, and, and there's still stories that are untold or sort of gaps in coverage in terms of historical and cultural uh, aspects of our nation's history that don't have a park dedicated to that yet, but there's so many wonderful places to visit. It really uh, is kind of a lifetime experience for me to visit. You know, I probably saw maybe 20 parks I'd never been to and it was wonderful. Well, Mike and Kristen, it's been uh, an interesting conversation, and um, we, we didn't cover all of it. I mean, there's a, a lot of news, um, good news and bad news across the national park system this past year. Um, the air tour management plans and, and how they're going forward, um, it'll be interesting to see how they play out. Devil's Hole Pupfish, uh, incredible population boom there this year at Death Valley National Park. That's a positive story, um, and there's many, many other stories. 
We're going to have to revisit in another couple months when uh, the Park Service sits down with the appropriators in Congress to see um, how much uh, more money they can get because th- there are so many issues that need to be dealt with from from climate change impacts to the staffing impacts to uh, so many different impacts that I can't even name them all um, that require more money if, if we're going to properly take care of the national park system. And I just want to say... I think you're listing out a bunch of things, Kurt, that we want to make sure the public is really engaged in moving forward on the park service, um, on the park services challenges and, and also the very good things that they're working on and that they, the agency feels supported moving forward on them. But, you know, we're about to change hands in Congress. And I think it's important for everyone listening to understand that there are going to be more views expressed in Congress uh, next year. And we're going to hear quite a bit about mining outside of parks. And we're going to hear about renewables. And we're going to hear about um, visitation challenges from many perspectives. And we are going to really need the parks community to be active going into next year because um, these are going to be some tough conversations that we're going to have about the challenges moving forward in order to fully address climate change and where parks fit into that puzzle. And um, I really hope folks are um, making sure they're signing up for the, the coalition's newsletters and NPCA's action alerts and the travelers updates, because it's, it's going to be a hot year next year and we're going to need as much engagement as possible from, from park advocates. So, so stay tuned and make sure you're paying attention to all three of our organizations because it's, it could be a great year of debate or it could uh, really turn uh, into something that could be problematic for the park. So we, we hope everyone stays engaged. I'm kind of concerned that it's going to be one big stalemate because of the... the I, mean, I think we're having all these debates, right, about you know, the future growth of our country and batteries and changing the energy grid things of that nature and that requires mining and and where do we do it and where is it safe to do and how close are we going to let this happen to our national parks and so in order to have a full debate Kurt which is going to happen regardless of whether they pass legislation we still need to be part of that debate as it goes on in Congress in this upcoming year. No absolutely but a lot of these issues you know as we've discussed over the past hour you know the park service needs more staff they need more funding to pay for that staff to pay for maintaining the parks. I mean, Mike, uh, how do you, how do you stay positive going forward? I think having worked for the agency for so long, I am pretty much pragmatic about it. Not overly idealistic. I realize there's limited budgets, there's politics, there's differences of opinions among the congressional representatives, et cetera, as to how um, parks should be run. But I try to stay optimistic because I think national parks resonate with everyone, regardless of their political party. And so some of the best legislation, I think, you know, in my career span was often bipartisan, but for some greater purpose. So, if, you know, think of the Greater Great America Outdoors Act or something like that. Um, that occurred in the previous administration and had bipartisan support and is doing great things. So I, I think sometimes... <laughs> there's the chance of something great happening, even though there's generally strong differences of opinion on unfortunately sort of the day-to-day nuts and bolts things like operating staff and you know how do you deal with too many people, et cetera. But anyway, uh, I'd like to end the year on an optimistic note that we, we may be surprised with whatever comes out of the next Congress. I hope you're right, Mike. It's going to be an interesting uh, process to watch. Kristen, Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, we will have to get back together in another few months to um, see if there's more clarity on how Congress is going to treat the National Park Service and the park system going forward. Thanks, Kurt. Happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, same to you all. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. The past year was an amazing one across the National Park System for so many different reasons. There was tragedy and exhilaration, deterioration and resiliency, and always discovery and adventure. 
I'd personally like to thank all the National Park Service staff who work with me and all the writers and broadcasters on assignment for The Traveler the past 12 months. You made our jobs so much easier. And I'd also like to thank all the listeners who downloaded each week's episode, ready to explore some facet of the parks, whether it had to do with management, challenges, or discovery. Looking ahead to 2023, here's hoping you find your escape into the parks amazing and perhaps even a little life-changing. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Park's Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.